Section 7 of The Fundamentals, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fundamentals, Volume 1, Section 7. History of the Higher Criticism, Part 2, by Dyson Haig. What of Christ's Authority? The attitude of Christ to the Old Testament scriptures must determine ours. He is God. He is truth. His is the final voice. He is the supreme judge. There is no appeal from that court. Christ Jesus the Lord believed and affirmed the historic veracity of the whole of the Old Testament writings implicitly, Luke 24, verse 44, and the canon or collection of books of the Old Testament was precisely the same in Christ's time as it is today. And further, Christ Jesus our Lord believed and emphatically affirmed the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18, Mark 12, verses 26 to 36, Luke 16, verse 31, John 5, verses 46 and 47. That is true, the critics say, but then neither Christ nor his apostles were critical scholars, perhaps not in the 20th century sense of the term. But, as a German scholar said, if they were not critici doctores, they were doctores veritatis, who did not come into the world to fortify popular errors by their authority. But then they say, Christ's knowledge as man was limited. He grew in knowledge, Luke 2, verse 52. Surely that implies his ignorance. And if his ignorance, why not his ignorance with regard to the science of historical criticism? Or even if he did know more than his age, he probably spoke as he did in accommodation with the ideas of his contemporaries. In fact, what they mean is practically that Jesus did know perfectly well that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, but allowed his disciples to believe that Moses did, and taught his disciples that Moses did, simply because he did not want to upset their simple faith in the whole of the Old Testament as the actual and authoritative and divinely revealed word of God. Or else, that Jesus imagined, like any other Jew of his day, that Moses wrote the books that bear his name, and believed, with the childlike Jewish belief of his day, the literal inspiration, divine authority, and historic veracity of the Old Testament, and yet was completely mistaken, ignorant of the simplest facts, and wholly in error. In other words, he could not tell a forgery from an original, or a pious fiction from a genuine document. The analogy of Jesus speaking of the sun rising as an instance of the theory of accommodation is a very different thing. This, then, is their position. Christ knew the views he taught were false, and yet taught them as truth, or else Christ didn't know they were false and believed them to be true when they were not true. In either case, the Blessed One is dethroned as true God and true man. If he did not know the books to be spurious when they were spurious, and the fables and myths to be mythical and fabulous. If he accepted legendary tales as trustworthy facts, then he was not and is not omniscient. He was not only intellectually fallible, he was morally fallible, for he was not true enough to miss the ring of truth in Deuteronomy and Daniel. And further, if Jesus did know certain of the books to be lacking in genuineness, if not spurious and pseudonymous, if he did know the stories of the fall and Lot and Abraham and Jonah and Daniel to be allegorical and imaginary, if not unverifiable and mythical, 
then he was neither trustworthy nor good. If it were not so, I would have told you. We feel, those of us who love and trust him, that if these stories were not true, if these books were a mass of historical unveracities, if Abraham was an eponymous hero, if Joseph was an astral myth, that he would have told us so. It is a matter that concerned his honour as a teacher as well as his knowledge as our God. As Canon Liddon has conclusively pointed out, if our Lord was unreliable in these historic and documentary matters of inferior value, how can he be followed as the teacher of doctrinal truth and the revealer of God? John 3 verse 12 After the Kenosis Men say in this connection that part of the humiliation of Christ was his being touched with the infirmities of our human ignorance and fallibilities. They dwell upon the so-called doctrine of the kenosis, or the emptying, as explaining satisfactorily his limitations. But Christ spoke of the Old Testament scriptures after his resurrection. He affirmed after his glorious resurrection that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. Luke 24 verse 44. This was not a statement made during the time of the kenosis, when Christ was a mere boy, or a youth, or a mere Jew after the flesh. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11. It is the statement of him who has been declared the Son of God with power. It is the voice that is final and overwhelming. The limitations of the kenosis are all abandoned now, and yet the risen Lord not only does not give a shadow of a hint that any statement of the Old Testament is inaccurate, or that any portion thereof needed revision or correction, not only most solemnly declared that those books which we receive as the product of Moses were indeed the books of Moses, but authorized with his divine imprimatur the whole of the Old Testament scriptures from the beginning to end. There are, however, two or three questions that must be raised, as they will have to be faced by every student of present-day problems. The first is this. Is not refusal of the higher critical conclusions mere opposition to light and progress and the position of ignorant alarmists and obscurantists? Not obscurantists. It is very necessary to have our minds made perfectly clear on this point and to remove not a little dust of misunderstanding. The desire to receive all the light that the most fearless search for truth by the highest scholarship can yield is the desire of every true believer in the Bible. No really healthy Christian mind can advocate obscurantism. The obscurant who opposes the investigation of scholarship and would throttle the investigators has not the spirit of Christ. In heart and attitude he is a medievalist. To use Bushnell's famous apologue, he would try to stop the dawning of the day by wringing the neck of the crowing cock. No one wants to put the Bible in a glass case but it is the duty of every Christian who belongs to the noble army of truth-lovers to test all things and to hold fast that which is good. He also has rights, even though he is technically speaking unlearned, and to accept any view that contradicts his spiritual judgment simply because it is that of a so-called scholar is to abdicate his franchise as a Christian and his birthright as a man. And in his right of private judgment he is aware that while the privilege of investigation is conceded to all, the conclusions of an avowedly prejudiced scholarship must be subjected to a particularly searching analysis. 
The most ordinary Bible reader is learned enough to know that the investigations of the book that claims to be supernatural by those who are avowed enemies of all that is supernatural, and the study of subjects that can be understood only by men of humble and contrite heart, by men who are admittedly irreverent in spirit, must certainly be received with caution. The Scholarship Argument The second question is also serious. Are we not bound to receive these views when they are advanced, not by rationalists, but by Christians, and not by ordinary Christians, but by men of superior and unchallengeable scholarship? There is a widespread idea among younger men that the so-called higher critics must be followed because their scholarship settles the questions. This is a great mistake. No expert scholarship can settle questions that require a humble heart, a believing mind, and a reverent spirit as well as a knowledge of Hebrew and philology. And no scholarship can be relied upon as expert which is manifestly characterized by a biased judgment, a curious lack of knowledge of human nature, and a still more curious deference to the views of men with a prejudice against the supernatural. No one can read such a suggestive and sometimes even such an inspiring writer as George Adam Smith without a feeling of sorrow that he has allowed this German bias of mind to lead him into such an assumption of infallibility in many of his positions and statements. It is the same with Driver. With a kind of sick volo sick jubio airy ease, he introduces assertions and propositions that would really require chapter after chapter, if not even volume after volume, to substantiate. On page after page, his must be, and could not possibly be, and could certainly not, extort from the average reader the natural exclamation, but why, why not, wherefore, on what grounds, for what reason, where are the proofs? But of proofs or reason there is not a trace. The reader must be content with the writer's assertions. It reminds one, in fact, of the we may well suppose, and perhaps of the Darwinian, who offers as the sole proof of the origination of a different species his random supposition. A great mistake. There is a widespread idea also among the younger students that because Graf and Wellhausen and Driver and Chain are experts in Hebrew, that therefore their deductions as experts in language must be received. This too is a mistake. There is no such difference in the Hebrew of the so-called original sources of the Hexateuch as some suppose. The argument from language, says Professor Bissell, requires extreme care for obvious reasons. There is no visible cleavage line among the supposed sources. Any man of ordinary intelligence can see at once the vast difference between the English of Tennyson and Shakespeare, and Chaucer and St. John de Mandeville. But no scholar in the world has ever, or ever will be able to tell the dates of each and every book in the Bible by the style of the Hebrew. The unchanging Orient knows nothing of the swift lingual variations of the Occident, Pusey, with his masterly scholarship, has shown how even the book of Daniel, from the standpoint of philology, cannot possibly be a product of the time of the Maccabees. The late professor of Hebrew in the University of Toronto, Professor Hirschfelder, in his very learned work on Genesis, says, We would search in vain for any peculiarity either in the language or the sense that would indicate a twofold authorship. As far as the language of the original goes, the most fastidious critic, 
could not possibly detect the slightest peculiarity that would indicate it to be derived from two sources. Dr. Emil Reich, also in his Bankruptcy of the Higher Criticism, in the Contemporary Review, April 1905, says the same thing. Not all on one side. A third objection remains, a most serious one. It is that all the scholarship is on one side. The old-fashioned conservative views are no longer maintained by men with pretension to scholarship. The only men who oppose the higher critical views are the ignorant, the prejudiced, and the illiterate. This, too, is a matter that needs a little clearing up. In the first place, it is not fair to assert that the upholders of what are called the old-fashioned or traditional views of the Bible are opposed to the pursuit of scientific biblical investigation. It is equally unfair to imagine that their opposition to the views of the continental school is based upon ignorance and prejudice. What the conservative school oppose is not biblical criticism, but biblical criticism by rationalists. They do not oppose the conclusions of Wellhausen and Kuhnen because they are experts and scholars. They oppose them because the biblical criticism of rationalists and unbelievers can be neither expert nor scientific. A criticism that is characterized by the most arbitrary conclusions from the most spurious assumptions has no right to the word scientific. And further... Their adhesion to the traditional views is not only conscientious, but intelligent. They believe that the old-fashioned views are as scholarly as they are scriptural. It is the fashion in some quarters to cite the imposing list of scholars on the side of the German school, and to sneeringly assert that there is not a scholar to stand up for the old views of the Bible. This is not the case. Hengstenberg of Basel and Berlin was as profound a scholar as Eichhorn, Vater or De Wetter, and Keil or Kurz and Zahn and Ruprecht were competent to compete with Reuss and Kühnen. Wilhelm Müller, who confesses that he was once immovably convinced of the irrefutable correctness of the graf Wellhausen hypothesis, has revised his former radical conclusions on the ground of reason and deeper research as a higher critic, and Professor Winkler, who has of late overturned the assured and settled results of the higher critics from the foundation, is, according to Orr, the leading Orientalist in Germany and a man of enormous learning. Sais, the professor of Assyriology at Oxford, has a right to rank as an expert and scholar with Chain, the Oriel Professor of Scripture Interpretation. Margoliuth, the Laudian professor of Arabic at Oxford, as far as learning is concerned, is in the same rank with Driver, the Regis professor of Hebrew, and the conclusion of this great scholar with regard to one of the widely vaunted theories of the radical school is almost amusing in its terseness. Is there then nothing in the splitting theories, he says, in summarizing a long line of defense of the unity of the book of Isaiah? Is there then nothing in the splitting theories? To my mind, nothing at all. Green and Bissell are as able, if not abler, scholars than Robertson Smith and Professor Briggs, and both of these men, as a result of the widest and deepest research, have come to the conclusion that the theories of the Germans are unscientific, unhistorical, and unscholarly. The last words of Professor Green in his very able work on the higher criticism of the Pentateuch are most suggestive. 
Would it not be wiser for them to revise their own ill-judged alliance with the enemies of evangelical truth, and inquire whether Christ's view of the Old Testament may not, after all, be the true view? Yes, that, after all, is the great and final question. We trust we are not ignorant. We feel sure we are not malignant. We desire to treat no man unfairly, or set down aught in malice. But we desire to stand with Christ and his church. If we have any prejudice, we would rather be prejudiced against rationalism. If we have any bias, it must be against a teaching which unsteadies heart and unsettles faith. Even at the expense of being thought behind the times, we prefer to stand with our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, in receiving the Scriptures as the Word of God, without objection and without a doubt. A little learning and a little listening to rationalistic theorizers and sympathizers may incline us to uncertainty, but deeper study and deeper research will incline us, as it inclined Hengstenberg and Müller, to the profoundest conviction of the authority and authenticity of the Holy Scriptures, and to cry, Thy word is very pure, therefore, and thy servant loveth it. Appendix it may not be out of place to add here a small list of reading matter that will help the reader who wants to strengthen his position as a simple believer in the Bible. As I said before, a large list would be altogether too cumbersome. I would only put down those that I have personally found most valuable and suggestive. If one can afford only one or two, I would suggest Green or Kennedy, or Munhall and Parker, or Safia and Anderson, or Orr and Urquhart. The most massive and scholarly are Horn's Introduction and Pusey on Daniel, but they are deep, heavy, and suitable only for the more cultured and trained readers. Green, The Higher Criticism of the Pentateuch. Green, General Introduction to the Old Testament in two volumes, The Text and Canon. Green, Unity of Genesis. The foregoing are very good. Green was a great scholar, the Princeton professor of Oriental and Old Testament literature, a man who deeply loved the Bible and the Lord Jesus. He is perhaps the strongest of the scholarly opponents of the rationalistic higher critics. Or, the Bible under trial. Or, the problem of the Old Testament. Dr. Orr is one of the ablest and most scholarly writers in the English-speaking world today. Bissell, the Pentateuch, its origin and structure. Bissell, introduction to Genesis. Bissell is a careful scholar and writes from the conservative side. Able, but not so firm as Green. Munhall, the highest critic versus the higher critics. By an evangelist, and therefore from the earnest rather than the expert standpoint. More to the level of the average reader than Green or Bissell. Muller, are the critics right? by a former follower of Graf Verhausen, and most interesting to the scholarly, hardly suitable for the average reader, as it assumes familiarity with the technicalities of the German critical school. Margul Youth, Lines of Defense of the Biblical Revelation. Academic and technical, immensely interesting. His reasoning is not equally powerful throughout, however. Anderson, the Bible and Modern Criticism. The work of a layman, vigorous and earnest. He gives no uncertain sound. Parker. None like it. A plea for the old sword. 
vigorous and slashing, too, but grand in the eloquence of its pleadings. Every minister should read it, brimming with sanctified common sense. Sais, the early history of the Hebrews. The chapter on the composition of the Pentateuch is very strong. Waller, Moses and the Prophets. A vigorous and unanswerable criticism of Driver's treatment of the Pentateuch. Kennedy. Old Testament Criticism and the Rights of the Unlearned. A small and cheap book, but well worth study. Sheraton. The Higher Criticism. A most valuable little work, thoroughly up to date. The following works also, although they are not exactly along the line of the Higher Criticism, are most valuable and suggestive. Safia. Christ and the Scriptures. A little book, but a multum in parvo. To my mind, for its size, the best thing ever written on the subject. Safia, the divine unity of scripture. A great book, full of well-cooked meat. Most scholarly, deeply spiritual, always suggestive. Pearson, many infallible proofs. Earnest, full, illustrative, most helpful. Urquhart, the inspiration and accuracy of the holy scriptures excellent and scholarly. Gibson, The Ages Before Moses, a most valuable and suggestive work, especially useful to young ministers. Gibson, The Mosaic Era, spiritual and suggestive also. A scholarly friend suggests also the following. Reverend Thomas Whitelaw on The Old Testament Problem, James W. Turtle on Old Testament Problems, C. H. Rouse on Old Testament Criticism in New Testament Light. Reverend Hugh McIntosh on Is Christ Infallible and the Bible True? End of section 7.